Well, good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you today. My name is Corey. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get to do what I love to do, which is open God's Word with you this morning. So please get your Bibles out to Mark chapter 12. Uh, We're going to be in Mark 12 from verses 1 through 12 this morning. And we're going to be looking at a very famous parable of the Lord Jesus. Now, a lot of the parables of Jesus are stories to try and drive at a spiritually hidden reality or to a moral principle. A lot of the times when Jesus tells these types of stories, he's trying to get people to to get their attention, but not get everybody's attention. He would often say things like, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Those who have eyes to see, let them see. Because not everybody's going to understand all of the things that Jesus is trying to communicate. Does that make sense? Now, this parable is the most hostile, the most deliberate, and the most poignant of all of Jesus' parables. There's no guesswork to be done. When we read this parable, Jesus kind of goes off script some and is trying to express to us there's something significant that the onlookers, the hearers as he's teaching need to understand. And so this is, it's going to seem like as we go through it, it's going to make perfect sense to us. The title of the message today is The Religious Rejection of God's King. Because that's what was happening in the religious system of of Judaism at the time of Jesus, especially as he goes into the temple courts. That's kind of the context of where we're at now with our passage. He's going in and he's describing what's happening in the temple courts. Uh, Pastor Neil, a couple weeks ago, walked us through how the the people were using the temple for money changing and they were doing something that was atrocious. Uh, Last week, Pastor Kevin walked us through how uh, Jesus and the religious leaders kind of had this fight about authority and where it comes from. And so this, this is the backdrop to what we find now. So would you stand as we read God's word together and honor it? Mark chapter 12, verse 1 through 12. You can follow along in, in the Bible that you have or on your phone or whatever. Just listen to me. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a pit for the wine press. He built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit from his vineyard. But these hired hands seized him, they beat the messenger, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them, and they struck this man on the head and then treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and this one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, and some others they killed. He had one yet left to send, a son whom he loved." He sent him last of all, saying, Surely they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir of the fortune. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of that vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus asked. He responds with, He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew Jesus had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowds, so they left him alone and went away. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thank you. So the big idea today is, is around this idea, because if, you, if you're paying attention to the thread of Mark's gospel, the hostility against Jesus continues to grow, and the hard-heartedness of the religious leaders becomes more and more apparent as we get closer and closer to the cross. So this is the big idea today. Our response to this parable shows us the condition of our own hearts. And so as we go through the text, we're going to see how that applies to us. 
So starting in verse 1, it says, He, Jesus, began to speak to them. Them is the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders of Israel as they're in the temple courts. And he started to speak to them in parables. So the supposedly veiled realities and spiritual, uh, spiritual connotations. And he says this, A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a pit for a wine press. He built a watchtower. And then he rented it out to some, uh, some farmers in the vineyard as he went away on his journey. So the people who are present here is the religious elite of Israel. They are coming to see this Jesus because he's stirring up a lot of confusion and difficulty from their perspective. And a bunch of the crowds of people, including the 12 disciples. These are the people who are listening to Jesus as they had this interaction in the last passage about where Jesus' authority comes from. And they're listening to this. And the, the couple different groups of people would have heard this story differently. The educated would have had their mind directly put back to a place in the Old Testament. And we're going to go there in a second. The others were just kind of listening to this story because it's grabbing their attention. But the parable begins with four elements. A vineyard a wall for protection, a pit and a wine press for the grapes, and a watchtower to protect from possible intruders. Then the farmer leaves it in the capable, somewhat, hands of the hired farmers, and he leaves it to them as he goes away on his journey. Now, the, the people of this day, this was very common practice. Those who were wealthy who had land would generally hire it out to people that they considered to be less than the wealthy of the society. So the people in this culture, they're seeing this, they're hearing this going, okay, yes, this makes sense. But the religious leaders, the people who knew the Old Testament, their minds, like I said, were taken to the Old Testament. Because in Isaiah chapter 5, basically the exact same allegory is used when it's talking about Israel. And this is what Isaiah 5 says. Let me read it for you. I will sing for the one I love a song about this vineyard. My loved one has a vineyard and it has a fertile hillside. He dug it up and he cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest of wines. He built a watchtower in it and he cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and the men of Judah judge between me and this vineyard. What more could have been done to this vineyard than God has done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to this vineyard. I'm going to take away its protection and it's going to be destroyed. It will break down its walls and it's going to be trampled on. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. No briars or thorns will grow there. I will command clouds not to rain on it any longer. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but he saw only bloodshed, for righteousness, but only heard cries of distress. So it seems very similar, right? The allegory of this vineyard is kind of put in our eyes to see what, what about this is familiar to us. The religious elite, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the scribes and the elders, they would understand that Jesus is using this Old Testament allegory to prove now a different point. Now this has kind of pricked their attention and made them start to understand, okay, uh, how is Jesus then going to use this allegory to make us look good? Because to the, the religious elite, that's exactly what they're hoping for. They're, they're, they've just had a conversation, a confrontation about Jesus' authority, and he goes directly now into this parable that was supposed to be somewhat encouraging for them. But it continues. He says, Jesus says, at harvest time, he, being the, uh, the, the owner of the vineyard, sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. But these tenants, this is what they do. They seized the servant— they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. 
So the, 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 the owner of the vineyard, he sends a messenger expecting a good report, expecting to yield some of the fruit at harvest time from the, the vineyard that he's planted. And instead of getting his rightfully owed fruit, he's, his messenger, his representative, as it were, was treated poorly. So he continues, then he, the vineyard owner, sends another servant to this same group of tenants. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another of these messengers, and that one, they took it so far as even to kill him. He sent many others, some they beat, others they killed. So you kind of get this idea that as Jesus is telling this story, the tenants really aren't being seen in a very good light, are they? They're continually getting a, a, a worse and worse reputation because they are doing things that are shameful. They're doing things that are wrong. They're doing things that are inappropriate. They're treating the owner's hired hands like they're worthless. Basically saying this, the owner of the vineyard is also worthless. Because if we're going to treat his servants this way, then we don't really have any care in the world about what he has to say. With each servant that comes in their time the, from the owner, Jesus is in this story growing the contempt for us as the hearers towards the tenants, towards the hired hands. And it continues, it continues to no end. Seeing as he says the owner sends more and more people, the more and more he sends, the worse and worse they are treated. Beating, killing, and throwing the vineyards, uh, throwing the messengers of the vineyard owner out of the vineyard. So what are we supposed to stand, understand from this? Because Jesus is trying, he's intentionally building the, building the contempt for us against the tenants. He's trying to help us see that what they're doing is not okay. And he's trying to build this out of that same Isaiah passage. Now that Isaiah passage, the people who were in charge at that point of Israel's history were the very wayward and ungodly kings of the northern and southern kingdoms. So God is really, through Isaiah, speaking this against them because he was saying, you are supposed to act the way that I have designed for you to act, and you are doing something completely inappropriate. You're bringing to my land a whole bunch of bloodshed and no justice. And so for the people of Israel, they liked that idea because their king was terrible as well. At the time of Jesus, Herod the Tetrarch, who was over them, and the Romans who was over them, they're like, we don't like those guys, so this makes sense. This is good. We, we like that these guys are being treated with contempt. They're, they're not doing their job. But what does this actually tell us? Is that hard hearts reject God's messengers. If you're taking notes, I want you to fill us in because it's going to become very important later. As Pastor Charles would often say, if you take notes, you're going to retain more. So make sure that you're taking notes and putting thoughts to paper. It does something in our brain. I don't know anything about it, but he used to say it, so it's probably true. But our hard hearts reject God's messengers. The hired workers reject all the messengers that the owner is sending to them. At the very least, they're saying to the owner, we don't care what you have to say or what you want from us because we're going to do what we want and you don't have any authority here. But even with how they're treating the messengers and the servants of the vineyard over, still the owner desires to have what's rightfully his. He continues to send them. You think after a few, he'd either just go on his own or he'd decide, well, it's, maybe it's not really that great a fruit and it's, it's not going to be an issue for me and I probably own other stuff. It's not such a big deal. But that's not the point of the story, is it? But this is what our hearts do. Our religiously driven hard hearts reject God's messengers because they call us to ownership. They call us to accountability. Then Jesus continues. If the people of the religious elite were listening, now they're really going to pay attention. 
He says, he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. Does this seem like a familiar phrase? It's actually the word, his own beloved. And now in the context of Aramaic and Greek, the word beloved son means that there's only one. There's only one son to send. Another way of saying this is that he, his beloved son whom he yet held back. That's the connotation of what he's saying. But he sends him last of all saying, surely they will respect my son. Now for us as people of New Testament era, of being beyond the ancient world, we look back at this text and go, don't they see what they're doing? And of course they don't see what they're doing. This is happening in real time for us. This is recorded and we have the resurrection on the other side of the story. But this is John 3.16 all over the place, right? That God is going to send his beloved, his only son, and surely if I send my son, they will listen to him. But this is the response. But the tenants, these evil men, said to one another, this is the heir of the entire fortune. So come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So in, in their mind, in the, in the first century context, what they're hearing is the owner's dead because the heir has come. So if we can get rid of the heir to the fortune, it's up for grabs. We can take whatever we want. We've already done away with all of the servants and messengers. If he's sending his son, he has no one left to send. Clearly the owner's dead, and we can just kind of get out of this scot-free. Without a beat, Jesus says... The tenants said to one another, this is the heir of the fortune, let's kill him, so that the inheritance will be ours. So they took him, they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. Now to us, this seems as clear as it can be, right? Looking back from this, from the post-resurrection side, as we said, we know exactly what Jesus was saying here. It's Jesus who is God's beloved son, who is sent to the house of Israel. He's sent to the vineyard of Israel, and he was going to be rejected by the religious elite. He was going to be killed by the religious elite so that they could get him out of their way and have their own way of greed, right? That's the whole story of the New Testament when it comes to Jesus and how he was betrayed by his own. He was sought by the religious leaders and they were trying to get rid of him because he was disrupting the, the religiosity of their day. And like this, Jesus was killed and thrown out of the vineyard. Now what's interesting is Matthew and, and Luke's gospel record this same parable, but almost word for word except for this phrase. In Matthew and Luke's gospel, they say that he was thrown out of the vineyard and then killed. Well, that actually lines up a little bit more with the story of Jesus as he is taken and led out of Jerusalem up onto the, uh, the Mount of Golgotha, uh, Golgotha to be killed on the cross, right? He was led out of the city. He was kicked out of the city, God's vineyard, and led out of the city to be killed. And so for us looking at it, we're going, oh, this, this is like, this is just the story of redemption. This is the story of the gospel right here and all that it cost Jesus to do this. But those who were listening, if they weren't jolted awake when Jesus said the vineyard owner had a son, they are completely floored at the mistreatment of the heir to the fortune. Because this doesn't happen. The owner and the, and the owner's family, they are seen as a unit. And what's astounding about this is what we can learn from it, is that our hard hearts not only reject God's messengers, our hard hearts will reject God's son. 
We might, we might think it's okay to, to, to cast dispersion at maybe somebody who's, who's speaking in God's name. Like, we don't really like that preacher or, or that person. They don't really know what they're talking about. And we can, we can reject what they're saying, even if it calls us to accountability. But to reject God's own son is to reject God himself. And theologically, this is where we need to really spend our time. Because it is this, more than anything else, that raises God's wrath against humanity. That we would be so bold to mistreat and to even kill God's beloved son, the king of the universe. Now, before anybody thinks like I'm trying to be harsh on you a little bit, I just want you to understand, this is the human condition. When we read the religious elite in the text, we're reading ourselves and our own response to what God has called us to. And because of our mistreatment of God's son, this is what Jesus says. What will the vineyard owner do after the son's been rejected and killed? The vineyard owner will come, excuse me, come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now there's some speculation about what this actually means. Some, uh, some scholars, some Commentators suggest that what Jesus is referring to is the rejection of Israel and the acceptance of the Gentiles. Now, while part of that is certainly at play here, because Jesus, as the veil is torn, allows for people access into the holy place and the most holy place because of the sacrifice of the perfect lamb. But also, it's this idea that those who had the rightful ownership to be the religious elite, to share their thoughts and to teach the people and who were responsible for guiding the people spiritually the way that they were supposed to, it's that God is going to take away from them their ability to lead these people. Now, I would actually side a little bit more with that second perspective than the first, but I think both are, both are at play together. God, the owner of the vineyard, because of the mistreatment of his son, is going to come and get rid of the tenants who have rejected his authority, who have rejected his rule and reign, and bring about a new set of leaders, a new set of rulers, a new set of tenants who is going to respect his rule and reign. Everywhere in the Old Testament, as we read about the rejection of Israel and their, and their waywardness and and following after false gods and following after idols. That's the picture of our own hearts. When, sometimes when we read the Old Testament, we like to think of ourselves as, uh, when we read the, the story of David, we're like, be, be like David and slay your own giants. No, no, we're not David. We're his brothers who are cowering in fear, hoping that somebody else is going to deal with our problem for us. When we read some of the things about, well, how could they possibly reject God when he has given them manna from heaven and he's fed them with quail and he's given them water? How could we possibly reject God? Because that's our own heart's condition. We get hard against the things that God wants for us and what he wants for us is for our best. And so Jesus continues and he says, haven't you, now remember, who's he speaking to? The religious elite of Israel the scribes, the teachers of the law, the elders of Jerusalem. Haven't you read the scriptures? Okay, now we're having a fight. Jesus to this point has been telling a story and they're going, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. you're supposed to be telling us that the kings of Israel are bad. You're supposed to be telling us that the people who are leading our, our country aren't doing the right thing. Why are, you, why are you pointing this towards us? And what's interesting is that Jesus uses a very important text of the Old Testament. He quotes, and you can see it here, this, these quotation marks. This whole section is from a psalm, Psalm 118. Now, if you're paying attention, 
A few weeks ago, Pastor Neil walked us through Psalm 118 as it is used by the people as Jesus enters into Jerusalem and they shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest heaven, Hosanna to the Son of David. Remember that text? So this same psalm has this messianic theme about a stone. And he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, or another translation for this word is the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Asking the question. Now, if Psalm 118 is messianic about the hosanna of the coming of David's son, but it's also messianic as it, as it relates to the Lord as he has, he has brought about this stone that's going to cause difficulty because the builders are going to reject it, Jesus is picking a fight. He's not pulling any punches any longer. This is basically another way of saying this. The cornerstone of all of salvation that God has orchestrated through all of history is now in front of you and you are rejecting him. Everything about God's son that you are supposed to follow, you're supposed to see, you're supposed to delight in as God's Messiah, you are looking at it from the wrong side of perspective and saying this is now a hindrance to us as opposed to understanding that God has orchestrated that the rejected stone would be the chief cornerstone. Now, Another really important thing here that we can't get in English, because English is a weird language, in the Greek and in the Aramaic is what's called a, uh, a, a rhyming play on words. It's a very common thing that's used in ancient literature where somebody will take a similar sounding couple words and try and prove the connection to them. Now this word capstone or cornerstone is the word eben. It, it, just, it just means capstone. That's all that it means. But the word for son in this text that Jesus uses in reference to the son who comes in the name of the vineyard owner is the word ben. And so he's trying to, he's, he's very clearly pointing them in this direction that the son that you have rejected is the same stone that you're not supposed to reject. One commentator lays it out this way. He says, Jesus thus connects the stories, son of the landlord, this word, Ben, to the rejected Messiah, uh, the, uh, sorry, messianic stone, Eben, of Psalm 118. This also supported by the Hebrew wordplay, Ben, Eben, son and stone. So what he's saying is, the son that you have rejected is the stone that you rejected, and the stone that you rejected is the son you're supposed to accept. Does that make sense to us? Another commentator says it this way. How appropriate is it then that the applications of these verses, Psalm 118, 22, and this text from Mark chapter 12, is the suffering and glory of Jesus. He suffered in his rejection by humankind, but his father demonstrated his own acceptance by making the son, the, the uh, Ben, to be the chief cornerstone, the E-Ben. Notice how brilliantly Jesus is making sure there can be no guesswork whatsoever about who he's talking to, what he's talking about, and what they're supposed to understand. Remember how I started off the beginning of the sermon that some of these parables are kind of hidden and veiled messages? There's no guesswork here. This is right at them, right between the eyes, trying to help them understand something of dire, dire significance. And what does this tell us? That not only do we reject God's messengers and reject God's son, we even just reject God's plan. 
Because if God's plan was to send a chief cornerstone, a chief capstone as his son to lead us to where we need to go, to provide us salvation, the hard-heartedness of our human nature is to say, well, we don't want that. We want it another way. We don't want anything that makes us feel like we're less than God. We want to be seen as the heroes of the story. We want to be seen as the best. We want to be seen as the most important. But let's be very clear. God's plan is that there is only one way to heaven. There's only one way to right relationship with him. There's, there's only one plan of salvation. There's only one king. There's only one cornerstone. There's only one savior. There's only one plan that God has laid out for us to come to know him and to be made right with him and to be redeemed by him and to be reconciled by him and be restored by him. It's all about this King Jesus, the son who is the stone. And our hard hearts, when we reject that as humans, when, and put yourself in this position. How many of us have had conversations with non-Christian people who say, I really like Jesus, but I don't like organized religion. I really, I really like the idea of faith. I just don't believe that Jesus' claim to be God is true. Uh, I, I like the idea of community, but uh, I struggle to accept the fact that a, a book that was written thousands of years ago has any claim to how I live my life. We heard, we've heard these things before, right? It's because of this. We don't want to accept naturally. We don't want to accept what God has said. We don't want to accept what God has laid out for us in his word. The chief priests, the scribes, the teachers of the law, they were looking for some way to now silence Jesus because he has done something horrible. He's told them the truth. And look what the response is. Then they, the onlookers, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders of Israel that we see in verse, 11, uh, verse 27 of chapter 11, the tenants, as it were, looked for a way to, uh, to arrest Jesus because, what? They knew he had spoken the parable against them. Oh, this parable isn't about the kings of Israel not doing their job. This is about the religious elite rejecting God's son. Whoa, 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 hold on, Jesus. You can't make these kind of claims. We need to get rid of you because if you're right, we look bad. And if you're wrong, you're a liar and you're nuts and we have to get rid of you as fast as we possibly can. But <laughs> they cower, they were afraid. Why? Because the people loved Jesus. They were afraid of the crowds, so they left him and they went away. Unlike Isaiah's vineyard story where it was the land and the kings of Israel who had failed God's people. It was the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, who had now been seen as the wrongdoers. They are the ones now under God's judgment. They are the ones under his hand. They are the ones who have not accepted God's plan, which is so sad. Because the call of Isaiah, right after chapter 5, the very next thing is that Isaiah has this glorious uh, 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 vision of, of King Jesus seated on a throne. And, the, and you've, you've re, you can read about it in Isaiah chapter 6. I don't have time to go there now. But all of that is about going and speaking to the people so that you can call them to repentance. Call them away from their waywardness. Call them out of their hard-heartedness. Call them back to following God in the way that God had intended them to follow him. 
The the statements of chapter 5 in Isaiah are about the vineyard and the waywardness of the kings is followed directly by a call of repentance. The mouthpiece of Israel's prophecy, Isaiah, says, return to your God, honor and worship him, obey his commands so that it will go well with you. This is the response that they should have had. Repentance, seeing that what they are called to is for their benefit, repenting of their waywardness, repenting of their hard-heartedness, repenting of their rejection of Jesus and his authority. But unlike Isaiah, Jesus doesn't call them to repentance, but that should have been their response. They have two options. Repent of your wickedness, hindering and harming the people of God with their rules and regulations, the things that the religious elite were, were adding on to the law of God to repent of their mistreatment of God's servants, the the prophets of Israel and the messengers, primarily I think who Jesus is speaking about is John the Baptist, the last prophet before the coming of the Messiah. To repent of their mistreatment of God's son, the owner's son, the owner of the vineyard and his heir to the fortune, and to acknowledge their need for grace, but they don't do that. Because our hard hearts reject godly repentance. Oh, we don't like being told that we're wrong, do we? We don't. We want to be patted on the back, told us, told, and we want to be told, oh, good job, good boy, you've you, you done so great, you did so well. But when our hard hearts are like this, we can so easily move away from what we should do and move towards our self-righteous responses to blame shifting, to accosting those who are pointing out our sin and our disobedience. It's really easy to blame shift and say, the devil made me do it, Right? Or, no, 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 but you don't understand this. Or you don't understand, and I'm not trying to to dissuade us, but this is the nature of our hearts on their own, that we don't actually want to repent. We love our sin, because in our sin, we think that we're the master of ourselves. Jesus says something very different. In this way, if we have hard hearts that reject godly repentance, we show ourselves not to be the onlookers of the story, the the 12 disciples and the crowds in the temple. Instead, we show ourselves to be the religious elite who refuse to repent and follow the way that Jesus has called us to, not rejecting God's son and stone, but to accept it. Now, let me be clear. This, This passage is not about us. Or is it? While this text isn't prescription to a modern day because none of us are Jewish scribes or the elders of Israel, we're not the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin of an ancient ancient culture and country, but we, all of us, share the same condition of heart, don't we? Our human hearts can be so hard against the things of God because our hard hearts, they reject God's messengers in the same way that these tenants are seen to rejecting God's servants and those coming to collect the fruit of his labor. Our hard hearts reject God's son because we think that we can figure out a way to be our own masters and be our own destiny. But that's not the point because we also reject God's plan. He laid it out for us as clearly as possible. One way. Now that doesn't play nice in our tolerant Canadian Western society, does it? everybody's ways are equal. Everybody's ways are valid, which is basically another way of saying none of them are. But we do this. We reject God's plan, thinking that we can, we can somehow figure out a better way of doing things than God, the creator and sustainer of the universe and all of life in the palm of his hand and the breath of his mouth. We think that we know better, right? 
and our hard hearts reject godly repentance. We want to go our own way. We want to do our own thing. We want to be our own master. But for the Christian, for the follower of God, for the, those who are submissive to the lordship of Jesus and knowing that his way forward is best, we only have to do one thing. We just cross this out. Because then we can have hearts that don't reject God's messengers or reject God's son or reject God's plan or reject godly repentance. No, we can then instead rejoice in them. Because that's how God has transformed us. He's completely taken the waywardness of our inmost being, shelved it for a time of judgment that he's going to look at and say, my blood pays for that. And we can now rejoice in the salvation of God. This is what he's given us. But the only remedy is to then focus on Jesus, the capstone, the son, the Ben-E-Ben of the story, the beloved of the vineyard owner, to treat him rightly, to behold his love towards us, and to worship and revel in his glory. That's the only way that it changes. When we do that, we rejoice in God's messengers because they're pointing out in us something that needs to be changed. We rejoice in God's son because we know that he is the one who covers our sin. We rejoice in God's plan because it's so simple and so beautiful that we could never come up with it ourselves. And we rejoice in godly repentance because then we can enjoy communion with the Father. Right? As I was studying this passage and getting ready for this message, I came across a quote by the great English preacher, Charles Spurgeon. I'm going to leave you with this. The Lord Jesus Christ is so inconceivably glorious that I must tremble at any attempt to describe it. Assuredly, he is the very God of very God. He is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, and yet he deigned upon himself to take human form. He was born an infant into human weakness, and he lived as a carpenter to share in our toils. He took upon himself the form of a servant, and yet in, the, in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily in every way. He is the prince of the kings of the earth, and yet he took on a towel to wash the feet of the lowly. Because of his Godhead unity, you must not dare to harden your hearts. He is God's well-beloved. And if you are wise, he will also be yours. Do not turn your back on him who all the angels worship. Beware lest you reject the one whom God loves so well, for he will take it as an insult to himself. For he that despises the anointed of God has blasphemed God himself. You put your finger into the very eye of God when you slight his son. In grieving the Christ, you vex the very heart of God. Therefore, do not do it. I beseech you then by the love which God bears to his son to listen to this matchless messenger of mercy who would persuade you to repent. If you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you should kill him, he dies to redeem. If you would bury him, he rises again to bring us resurrection. Jesus is the love of God manifest. This is the call. Don't allow your heart to be hard, but soften yourself to rejoice in all that God has given you to be made right with God. That is why we're here. We're a gathered community of saints who used to be sinners, who were dead and who are now alive, to enjoy the life of Christ together. 
and to spread this message of goodness and grace to a world that is very hard against the things of God. But when we rejoice in that, when we rejoice in these things, the world takes notice and we can call them to repentance that they would be made right with this same God. Would you pray with me? So Father, I would simply ask that as we have been in your word today, as we've studied, as we sought to understand a little bit more about who you are, that we would see the very clear indications of this text, that we would see the implications of our own hearts, that you would show us the waywardness in us that we all struggle to understand, and that we would repent. Repenting where we need to of our wrongdoing, repenting of our waywardness, repenting of our hardness of heart, and changing that, choosing to, having an attitude of worship, having an attitude of rejoicing in all that you have provided for us because your plan is good, your messengers are good, your son is good, repentance is good. And let us fall at your feet knowing that you yourself are the cornerstone of all faith. We ask it in the glorious name of your son, King Jesus. Amen.